I too, Greg, was conflicted about today because I can't remember what I've said to you folks. And I didn't want to repeat myself, and so I communicated with Sarah. I said, did I tell the story about Peter jumping in the water and swimming to Jesus before? Did I do that when I was back at my last church? I had a six-month interim from last June to this past January, and I, I couldn't tell if I'd said that to them or if I talked to you folks about it. I've got early-onset dementia, folks, uh, and, and I, I tell you how it started. Um, you know, yeah, I'm not telling this to brag, just to explain. I was elected our senior class president in high school. And you would think with that, and it was a large high school, 360-some kids graduated with me. And you'd think, you know, at the end of the year, they vote on uh, most likely to succeed. You'd think maybe I'd be up for running. No, I wasn't in for that. Uh, most popular, I didn't, I didn't have anything. You know what I was elected after that? Most forgetful. <laughs> And so the Alzheimer's started back senior year of high school, and it's gotten progressively worse as I age. So I couldn't remember had I preached on this text or not. So I, I was talking to my wife about this, and, and she said, well, Barry, uh, go ahead and preach on it, because even if they heard it, it'll be your first time. So <laughs> all, right, all right, I'll go ahead and preach on it. <laughs> so, uh, no doubt you've all heard the expression deja vu you know, the illusion of experienced a situation that has happened before. Now, this not to be confused with deja mu, which is the sense that you've experienced milking this cow before. And it's not to be confused with uh, deja vu, which is the sense that you know who was on first base before. And it's not even to be confused with deja du, which is the sense that you have walked through this wet grassy field before. However, it is very much like deja pu, which is a sense, I've heard this sermon before, or I've heard this story before. This text shows up at a couple of places, really, in the Gospels. Uh, you just heard John 1 through 14, but you'll find it's parallel in Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. And if you have your Bibles, you might want to flip back and forth between those two because they're very similar. In fact, uh, Bible scholar Raymond Brown says that these two stories have ten common points. Number one, the disciples fished all night with terrible results. Number two, Jesus challenges them to let down their nets. Number three, the disciples enclosed an enormous catch. Number four, the effect on the net is mentioned. That is, that they nearly break. Number five, Peter reacts. Number six, Jesus is called Lord. Number seven, the other fishermen take part, but they don't say anything. Number eight, they both have the theme of following Jesus. Number nine, the catch of fish symbolizes a successful Christianary missionary endeavor. And number ten, the same words appear at various times in the two stories. To read those stories back to back, it's deja vu all over again. There is one very significant difference between these two stories, though. In Luke's gospel, 
The story of the miraculous catch of fish comes at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, and it records a time when Peter and some of the other disciples are called to do the number one job of Christianity. I hope you folks know what the number one job of Christianity is. The number one job of Christianity, that is those of us who follow Jesus, is to make more disciples. Now, I know some of you are probably thinking, well, I, I thought the number one job of Christianity was to help people, you know? Uh, feed the hungry, clothe the naked, visit the sick. No, 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 that's not the number. We do that as disciples to show our love for Jesus and with the hope that by what we do, others might be persuaded to become followers of Jesus. Making disciples is the job that Peter and the others were called to do in that first miracle. But reading the text for, from the, for this morning is at the very end of Jesus' ministry rather than at the beginning. This is an after Easter experience, and Jesus is not calling his disciples but rather he's calling his disciples back to the job that they were first called to do. In, in some ways, the text is really a strange one. It's after Easter. According to John's Gospel, Jesus has already appeared to Mary, to the disciples, finally to Thomas in Jerusalem. But in today's text, the scene suddenly shifts. It goes away from Jerusalem and here we find Jesus, the risen Christ, standing in the early morning in Galilee, inviting his disciples to try a different kind of fishing strategy. He had instructed them for some three years on how to fish for people, and now here, here he is back in Galilee telling them how to fish for fish again. Although, of course, at this point they don't recognize that it's him. Uh, only after the nets are full do they realize, probably because it's a repeat of that earlier miracle, it reminds them that they're actually seeing the Lord. Seeing this, Peter jumps into the water, swims about a hundred yards, uh, while the others bring in the fish. Jesus has already prepared a breakfast for them. It's a breakfast meeting, really, of fish and bread, and they eat it together. But the question I have for you is, why is Jesus back in Galilee instead of in Jerusalem? Why are the disciples back at their old trade without any indication that the events in Jerusalem have changed their lives? They've seen the Lord. He'd given them audacious promises. And there they are again, called to high service in the world. And yet here they are back at their favorite old fishing hole. What happened or what didn't happen that caused these guys to go back to their old trade? Peter Gomes uh, was the first professor, he was a professor of uh, preaching uh, at Harvard Divinity School, and he said that the disciples probably returned back to Galilee because that is the place that Jesus was most real to them. He talked about uh, Celtic mythology. Uh, and the notion that there are thin places in the universe where the visible and the invisible worlds almost come uh, touch each other. They come into closest proximity. It's like there's a thin membrane that is stretched between the here and the hereafter. And if you come to one of those places, you can almost push your finger and, and touch the other side of reality. Uh, the, the Sea of Galilee is like that for me. 
my wife and I have been there seven times, and we're going back again in June, God will, and you can come if you want, <laughs> just ask us about it. But hey, you, you get out on the boat in the Sea of Galilee, and, and it's such a calm and beautiful place, and you, you say, well, that, that's where the first breakfast was, right over there. And, and, that's where the, and that's where the Sermon on the Mount was. And over there, there's Capernaum. And it, it just is, it's a thin place where the here and the hereafter are so close to each other. And uh, for, for the disciples to seek out uh, Galilee in one sense is wise and good because it provides probably the clearest connection between the temporal and eternal. But I think they're back in Galilee for another reason. I remember the story about... Uh, two gas station uh, servicemen, a senior uh, training supervisor and a young trainee, and they're checking natural gas meters in a new suburban neighborhood. And they're go- they, they park their truck at the one end of the street, and they're going down, and they're checking these gas meters. And a lady sees these guys coming toward her house. It's the last house on the street. And the guys are checking the meter. She can't hear what it- they're saying, but they, they finish checking that meter. And then the, the senior uh, training supervisor, he challenges the younger guy to a race, you know, to see if he can still pick him up and put him down with the young fella. And so here these two guys are running back toward the truck, and they come to realize that there's a lady running right behind them. And, and so they, they kind of stop up, and they, they ask what the problem is. And, and she says very plainly, she says, look, when I see two gas guys running from my house at full speed, I figure I had better run too. <laughs> well, at Easter, there, there's a lot of running. Lateran, Peter, and John, they're running. Mary Magdalene, running. Now the disciples running back to Galilee. I think it's either because there is the present danger in Jerusalem, or even worse, I think they're back there because they've already lost heart. And one of the things I know is that when there's a crisis of spirit, people always go back to their earliest safe I see this all the time. I go to hospitals and nursing homes and bedsides. You know, there are people who are just a breath away from eternity. And you know what they always do? They always revert back to their earliest spiritual memories and patterns. I I go to people, you know, and they can compose the most astounding extemporaneous prayers. But in those final moments, you know what they say? Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. Or they say, they say, Our Father, who art in heaven. They always, or, or maybe they go back to some early hymn that they knew and loved. They always go back to the old standards. No, those are not necessarily the best songs. I mean, we sing fine songs in this church, but, but they are the first songs. And that's, you know, when people, at least my age, when the people are planning services, you know what songs they're going to pick. They're going to pick Amazing Grace. They're going to pick How Great Thou Art. Because those are the first songs. Those are the ones people learned early on. I go to uh, nursing homes, and there are people, of course, they're with Alzheimer's, and we have these services for folks, and, and they, they cannot remember the names of their children. But you start to sing those songs, <laughs> and all of a sudden, you hear them saying the words. That's why it is so critical to build a large spiritual base early on in life if you can. 
If it's too late for that, make sure your children get it. And if it's too late for them, make sure your grandchildren get it. Make sure they memorize their Bible verses. Make sure that they memorize important old hymns because sooner or later, life's going to throw you into the deep end. And that is not the time to learn to swim. (laughs) You better have some of this stuff under your belt, you know. For the disciples, their earliest, safest place is the Sea of Galilee, doing what they've always done, fish. So what does Jesus do? Does he cut them off? Does he roundly condemn them, chastise them? Do he say, you know, I'm going to start all over again. These guys aren't getting it. No, Jesus does what he always does with them and with us when we fail and fall away. He seeks them out. They are looking for Jesus. He's looking for them. I am amazed. I'm amazed at the persistent grace of Jesus. I remember reading uh, how in a lecture of graduate nurses, the teacher who's a specialist in Alzheimer's uh, patients and care, he was lecturing, and the following case presentation was given. He said, the patient, white female. She neither speaks nor comprehends the spoken word. Sometimes she babbles incoherently for hours on end. She shows complete disregard for her physical appearance, makes no effort to assist in her own care. She must be fed, bathed, and clothed by others. She's toothless, so her food must be pureed. Her sleep pattern is erratic. She often awakes in the middle of the night. Most of the time, he said, she is quite friendly and happy. Several times a day, however, she becomes quite agitated without any apparent cause and screams loudly until someone comes to comfort her. After the presentation, the nurses were asked how they would feel about caring for such a patient. And, you know, words like frustrated, depressed, annoyed were used. And the lecturer said that he actually enjoyed caring for her. And he was greeted with disbelief and raised eyebrows until he passed around a picture of the patient. It was a picture of his six-month-old daughter. If it were me, I'd have been frustrated, depressed, and annoyed at these disciples for having turned their backs on him to go back to their old jobs, but not Jesus. He lovingly calls to them. And he cares for them as a mother does for her child or as a father calls to son or daughter. And how does Jesus call to them? How does he care for them? He reenacts the very same scene when they were first called to that great task of fishing for people, telling them to cast their net on the far side, whereupon they catch a great catch of fish, 153 in all. But as they come to shore, they see something else. They see that Jesus has prepared a charcoal fire and he's cooking bread and fish for them. And Jesus invites them to bring some of the fish that they have caught and he adds it to what he is cooking. Do you see what is happening in this scene? Jesus is saying two things, which are really two ways of saying the same thing. He is saying to them, I love you and I forgive you. And how does he do this? He prepares a meal over a charcoal fire, and he feeds the disciples. Now, you're probably wondering, 
how preparing a meal says I love you and I forgive you, and you'd be right to do so. But there are hidden clues in this text so that you know that this is all about forgiveness and love, especially the forgiveness of Peter, who's the leader who has betrayed Jesus and forsaken him once before. There's this curious detail about this uh, post-Easter breakfast that John includes in his narrative. Jesus is cooking fish and bread over a charcoal fire. Not just a regular fire, it's a charcoal fire. There's only one other place in John's gospel where he uses that description, charcoal fire. Can you think where it might be? It's outside the high priest house on Thursday evening, Monday Thursday, where Jesus is inside being questioned and Peter's outside warming himself by a charcoal fire. And this maiden comes up and asks if he knows Jesus and Peter denies him, not once, but three times. And all this happens around a charcoal fire. And so uh, Jesus, he, he has this wonderful way uh, of reminding Peter. And he asked Peter the same question three times. One time would have been enough, you know. Do you love me? He could have just asked it once, but he asked him three times. It's Jesus' way of letting Peter walk it back to undo the three denials that he had before. That threefold repetition of Jesus uh, uh, denial is, is, is Jesus' gracious way of letting him find forgiveness and grace. It's a simple meal of saying, you know, I love you and I forgive you. That's the thing about food. Food is a powerful way, perhaps the most common way to express love. I, I think sometimes maybe Jesus might have been Italian because <laughs> he seems to be saying to these guys who fished all night long with frustration and failure, he says, come on, boys, come on, lads. He doesn't use the word men. He doesn't use the word disciples. The word that's used there is lad or lads or children. Come on, boys, you, you look tired and hungry. Come have something to eat. And, you know, and I know I'm being sexist now, but that's what a lot of women say to men. You look, that's how women sometimes express their love to men. There's an old saying, I'm sure you know it. The quickest way to a man's heart is through his stomach. <laughs> that didn't come into existence because it's not true. There's at least some truth in that. Eating, uh, cooking, and sharing food is one of the primary ways we share and express love for one another. Think for a moment about people you want to get close to. Maybe you can remember back to dating. What did you always do when you went on a date? You went out to eat. Because eating together is really the most intimate thing human beings can do. I know you're thinking, no, that's not the most intimate. Oh, you know, I know some folks who would sleep with folks they wouldn't be caught dead eating with. You know? Eating. <laughs> is the most intimate thing people can do together. And have you noticed how in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus puts food and forgiveness in the same sentence? Has that ever occurred to you before? You know the prayer. Give us this day our daily bread and, and 
Forgive us our trespasses as those who, forgive, uh, those who trespass against us. Why are those two connected? Because they are. They could have been two separate sentences, but they're not. They're tied together. Food, love, forgiveness all go together. Now, I, before I finish up, I want you to notice what was on the menu for the first breakfast. It's not an accidental thing any more than that charcoal fire thing is. Very intentional. It's a meal of bread and fish. Now, each of those things, bread and fish, have a very special meaning in John's Gospel. Bread, of course, is communion. But interestingly, we're not supposed to think about the Last Supper because when Jesus gives the disciples bread, because in John's Gospel, you might know this, there is no Last Supper. In John's Gospel, what is recorded is the foot washing. In John's Gospel, communion actually takes place in chapter 6. The communion scene is actually the feeding of the 5,000, where Jesus takes bread, he blesses it, he breaks it, and he has his disciples distribute it, using, if you will, communion language and imagery without ever mentioning the word. That miracle, that first feeding of the 5,000, is a miracle of abundance. And all those people back there in chapter 6, they are fed by the offering of a boy who has brought to Jesus, guess what? Five barley loaves of bread and two fish. Does that sound like a coincidence to you? That bread and fish are served at the so-called first communion of Jesus' ministry? Like this miraculous catch of fish, it shows, you know, that God abundantly provides whatever we need. That miraculous catch of fish that afternoon on the Sea of Galilee reiterates Jesus performed a great miracle and points to God's gifts for all of us. Like the feeding of the 5,000, John 21 is a story that's grounded for the post-Easter people to say, God will always provide for you. All receive abundantly of Jesus' gifts of love and forgiveness. You know, I've, I've preached, I don't know how many times it is, I forget, <laughs> three, four, five times. Anyhow, you probably ought to know what my favorite movie of all time is. My favorite movie of all time, you can ask my children, grandchildren, is a movie called The Princess Bride. It's a great classic movie. If you've never seen The Princess Bride, you ought to go home and watch it. It's a wonderful, wonderful movie. It's a story about a grandfather who comes to his grandson's house, uh, his, his daughter's house, and reads a story. He, the grandson's not feeling it. reads a story to his grandson. And, and it's a wonderful fairy tale that, uh, you know, the grandfather's telling the grandson this story. He's reading it to him, and, and eventually you forget that it's a story about a grandfather and a grandson, and, and you get caught up in this wonderful fairy tale that's really a love story between a a young maiden who's always ordering around a farmhand. Uh, uh, she calls him farm boy, and she tells him to do ridiculous and stupid things, and there's always disdain and disrespect in her voice. And, and all he ever says back to her is, as you wish, as you wish. You know the story well. <laughs> and you discover, of course, what it really means and when he says, as you wish, is I love you. Well, when the fairy tale's over, which is a wonderful fairy tale, and the story closes, well, well here, watch it. I think we got it on the screen. I hope we do. Princess Bride. 
by S. Morgenstern, Chapter One. Buttercup was raised on a small farm in the country of Florin. Our favorite pastimes were riding a horse and tormenting the farm boy that worked there. His name was Wesley, but she never called him that. Isn't that a wonderful beginning? Yeah, it's really good. <laughs> Nothing gave Buttercup as much pleasure as ordering Wesley around. Farm boy, polish my horse's saddle. I want to see my face shining in it by morning. As you wish. As you wish was all he ever said. Farm boy, fill these with water. Please. As you wish. That day, she was amazed to discover that when he was saying, as you wish, what he meant was, I love you. And even more amazing was the day she realized she truly loved him back. Come boy. Fetch me that picture. I have to confess, I didn't know we were going to show the first part of that clip. I thought that we were only showing the last part at the end of this story. But you, you can see, when Jesus invites Peter and the rest of the disciples, who have once again forsaken him, he, he is saying to them, as you wish, guys. Or better, I love you and I forgive you. Well, we're at the so what part of the sermon. Yeah, this is the point you should always wait for. When the sermon is over, you should be asking yourselves, so what? <laughs> of every sermon, you should ask that. Okay, Jesus sought out the disciples and extended love and forgiveness to them. How does that affect me? Well, maybe you're at some place you shouldn't be. Maybe you're at a place you never intended to be. Perhaps you've outwardly rebelled against God. Or perhaps you've accidentally strayed away. But you know you're no longer in God's will. This morning, God seeks you out and says to you, I love you and I forgive you. You have another chance. 
Come back and follow me. Indeed, every time you take communion, which we're going to do momentarily, do not forget that food is one of the primary ways that God says, I love you and I forgive you. But secondly, I want you to know that God has not given you this gift of love and forgiveness to keep for yourself. Have you ever been to Pennsylvania Dutch country before COVID and you go to a family-style restaurant? Do you ever do that? And, and when you go in, you don't get a booth or a table. Well, you get a table, but it's a, it's a communal table. It's a big table. And they sit you down with strangers and they bring out big bowls of food, not little individual dishes, but they bring out platters and bowls of food, and they set it in the center of the table, and here you are, you're eating with strangers, people you've never met before. But before long, you're talking and, and sharing jokes and enjoying one another's company. There's something powerful about the experience of eating together. Jesus and his disciples found that to be true on a hillside long ago where he fed the multitude. The church finds it true today as we gather around the Lord's table. You know, a failure to share food can lead to alienation and conflict. You know, it's, it's no accident, folks, that some of the most pivotal battles against segregation took place around lunch counters. It's not accidental that the trouble in Gaza these days is all centering around food right now. One of the surest ways to keep people divided from one another is to forbid them to eat with one another. Jesus' miracle on the seashore is a lot more than about loaves and fishes. It's so much more. And so sometime this week, as I know you folks weren't expecting this, I'm giving you some homework. I want you to call somebody and invite them to go out to eat or have them over to eat. Somebody you want to be closer to. Somebody who maybe who's hurt you badly or that you hurt badly. Somebody who's betrayed you or lied about you. Somebody you maybe even don't like all that much. And, and invite them to a meal. Invite them to a meal of fish and bread, if you will. And let them know that you love them. And if necessary, that you forgive them. Well, I'll finish with this. I know you've been waiting for those words a long time. <laughs> you know, there was a survey done a long time ago uh, where people were asked, thousands of people were asked, what are the phrases that you would most like to have said to yourself? I'll bet you could get what the number one phrase was. You can guess what that is. I love you. People wanted most to hear those words. You can probably even guess number two on the list. I forgive you. But do you know what number three on the list was? Supper is ready. <laughs> and here it is, communion time. And Jesus says, I love you. I forgive you. And supper is ready. <laughs>